Hello and welcome back to the second Christmas special of Songbook, the White Rabbit podcast all about brilliant reading material about music. I'm your White Rabbit published host, Jude Rogers, author of The Sound of Being Human, How Music Shapes Our Lives. I'm very excited about today's episode because I've genuinely been desperate to get the guest sitting opposite me since the early planning stages of Series 1. It's fair enough that she hasn't been able to be here before because she's been a bit busy over recent years, including sneakily making what is one of my albums of the year with her partner, Ben Watt, the excellent, um, propulsive, very moving, I find actually, um, Fuse by Everything But The Girl, their first album together in 23 years. And then there are, of course, her brilliant books... They come with some of my favourite ever memoir titles. Bed's a Disco Queen, Naked at the Albert Hall, Another Planet. I love that one, especially that pause you feel before reading that title. And most recently, 2021's Glorious, My Rock and Roll Friend, about her friendship with Lindy Morrison of the Go-Betweens. My guest today is the very excellent Tracy Thorne. Welcome and last song. Hello, Tracy. thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, you're very welcome. I, You were on my hit list from day one, <laughs> Tracy. so I'm chuffed you're here. Um, to start, I, want, I wanted to ask you about that shift you have from writing books to writing songs. So your last solo album, which is another absolute banger, 2018's Records, um, I still have the little... Um, Beer mats. I've still got the beer mats. Yeah, as my well. cup of yeah, tea. One of my favourite bits of merch. Not merch, <laughs> but like promotional material. Yeah, mine's a bit stained, but it's still, it's been well used. And I see your face every morning. <laughs> so uh, that album came after you'd published two books. Then you had a record. Two books came after that. I was wondering, does being really immersed in one sort of writing make you long for another sort of writing? You know, obviously, sort of songwriting and memoir writing are very different yeah. things. I do think they're quite a good like distraction from each other in a way. <laughs> you know, when I've been very immersed in one kind of project, it's a really nice feeling coming out of the end of it going, do you know what? I could just go and do the other thing now. I could go off and make some music or at the end of that project thinking, actually, because, you know, music's a bit more collaborative and you're mm. out there in the world more. And then, you know, writing a book, you retreat more into your own head. And sometimes you long for one or the other. So, you know, I, I feel lucky that over the last few years, I've sort of skipped back and forth between them. Do you really um, retreat when you write books? Do you kind of bundle yes, down in the house? Do you I do. Place you write? No, I, I can write kind of almost anywhere. Like I don't have an office space in our house or anything. I write at the kitchen table. I like writing on the move. I like being on a train. Okay. Um, I bash out lots of ideas just sitting on, on my laptop on a train somewhere. I like a night in a hotel and sitting in bed yes. writing. That's lovely. It's a dream, actually. Yeah. I've just found that last couple of years, you know, yeah. kind of like you can you can stay up late just writing exactly. and eating crisps. And it's That's, that sounds like bliss to me. <laughs> but, you know, it, it is quite internalised writing. You know, you do, mm. there are long periods of just staring into empty space, aren't there? And, mm. you know, you kind of know what you're going to say, but you're trying to, you know, say it in the best possible words. So it, it's very concentrated. So all your books are based around, you know, memories of your life. Yeah. Um, I'm interested to know, for you, what are the good bits and bad bits of revisiting your life? Are there bits <laughs> that you really enjoy burrowing into? And are there bits that you don't like to and you have to sort of steal yourself for doing it? Well, I mean, when I wrote the first book, Beds at Disco Queen, so I, I sort of decided I was going to tell the story of you know, getting into music as a teenager and then ultimately it's the story of everything but the girl's career, really. And, you know, that was quite difficult. Revisiting a long music career with all its ups and downs mm. and having to go back and listen to all the work 
and acknowledge that you don't like all of it as much as you <laughs> like some of the rest of it. Um, and I, you know, I realized really early on, the only point in me writing this book, as opposed to someone writing about us, mm-hmm. is I can give you the kind of inside story. I can tell you, so, which means you've got to be honest, which means you have to own up and say, look, you know, we made this record because these are the reasons why we made it. I can see why it doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> Not as brutal as that, but, you know, I can see why maybe, you know, this one doesn't hit the mark as well as this one does. Um, but I, I, I do remember finishing that book and thinking, I've said all this now. I can't unsay it. You know, it's mm, out there. I, yeah. If I put this in print and publish it, that's kind of my version of events. And it's, you know, it's in print. It's in black and white. Which is quite and scary. I, yeah, it's quite scary. And I did have to take a deep breath and think, you know, I haven't sugarcoated it. I haven't idealised us as artists. I I didn't like that tone that, you know, sometimes... I'm not going to name any names, but some artists do write that book where they do refer to themselves all the time as the artist mm. and their work as the art, you know. And when I was engaged in this, almost implying that everything they do by its very nature, because it's art with a capital A, you know, is worthy and is high quality. And I kind of thought, like, I can't strike that tone. That doesn't, it's not how I think. It's so. interesting, though, you know, before that book and, you know, before you became, you know, the Twitter celebrity, you know, R. Tracy. <laughs> Sorry, X, should I yeah, say. Back mm. in the day, when, in the it day when it was existed fun. and was fun, exactly. <laughs> no, but um, I loved, you know, kind of how you as a fan kind of create ideas of, you know, who Popsers might be. And you've written about this yourself. You know, people think of Tracy Thorne and mm. she's, you know, sitting there, the quiet marine girl, yeah. or she's the girl, you know, putting a lipstick on the back of the cab and she's quite, you know, there's these versions of you people yeah. have that they extrapolate. And it's not the Tracy Thorne who's on Twitter posting about the X Factor. And I just loved how for a while in our lives, um, social media helped us see artists in certain ways, but also, you know, that honesty and that humour in your books as well kind of showed us the you know, different sides to being an artist. I guess. Yeah, well, I found that liberating. You know, I, mm. I do find that sort of two-dimensional version of yourself as the artist, which I think some artists slightly hide behind. Mm. You know, I can see how it's a useful mask to present to the world, you know, the impenetrable, here I am being cool, <laughs> here I am being quiet, I'm mysterious. Um, I actually found that quite imprisoning. And, and, he, and you know, even fans who, who kind of like your work, the, when they get a slightly fixed idea of what you are, I always wanted to puncture it. And go, yeah. Yeah, I'm that, but I'm this as well. And yeah, I think it's all about trying to be like a whole person, yeah. you know, yeah. a whole person. Um, I have to mention um, Naked at the Alba Hall, which is one of the books. It's, it's a book I've bought for loads of people, oh, actually. Oh, and I know lots of people will have read Another Planet, um, my rock and roll friend, friend more recently. But you write about singing in such in an interesting way, you kind know, of the science of the voice, I remember that part of it. It could have really influenced me and my thinking into digging out to music works when I was kind of um getting my book together. Um so that that's that's my tip. You know, they're they're all brilliant. Um uh also I interviewed you a couple of years ago for The Observer um about um you know your book was part of this sort of wave of Memoirs by women, um, mm. which was brilliant. You know, um, Viv Alpatine and you and all these people who were suddenly writing about music in this way that cut through the bullshit yeah. and the mythology. And it was really exciting to be a woman reading this stuff. Mm. Um, you said to me in 2020, so this is me quoting what you've said now. Um, <laughs> I hope I still agree with it. <laughs> yeah. Um, often it feels like men own music and I still get as angry and frustrated about that as I ever did. I was reading that while doing prep 
for this and I, you know, I still feel that yeah. <laughs> a lot of the time. Has that changed for you at all, that feeling? Do you think things are changing? I do think it's changed a bit. You know, as you say, the fact that more women have now come out and written their version of events, in a way what frustrates me is that that work has had and has to be done. The kind of undoing of this idea that men have this sort of ownership of music and expertise, mm. you know. I mean, the book we're going to come on to talk about, you know, deals with a lot of that stuff as well. And I think maybe especially women my kind of age, you know, who grew up in the wake of that period from the late 60s through the 70s when pop music went from being something that was kind of considered trivial and for girls to being something that was considered serious and therefore for men. Mm. You know, if if you're my sort of age and you grew up in the wake of that, I do think it was a particularly masculine kind of period for music. Um, and then from punk onwards, I suppose a lot of women were trying to reclaim it and go, look, come on, we we deserve a seat at this table. We want to be heard of. Our take on this is maybe a bit different to yours. Mm. So it feels to me like we've lived through having to undo some of that stuff that was maybe created in the 70s. Yeah, and then there's a battle for the stories that get out there to be remembered and to be referred yeah. back to. Yes, you know. exactly. Whose version of events becomes the sort of authorised version. Yeah. And I do think, you know, as I say, I think, the great thing about more women, more people in general writing books mm. is that you just fill out the story. Yes. We're back again to that idea of wanting just a sort of a more three-dimensional version of events. Definitely. Right. I'm going to move on to the questions I ask every guest. Yeah. Um, what was the first music you loved? I'm intrigued to know what you're going to, how you're going to answer this. Well, I kind of have two stages. So I, th I suppose like everyone, I had the, the stuff I loved when I was really young, so, you know, David Essex, David Cassidy are the first couple of records I can kind of remember owning and, you know, feeling absolute joyful passion about. <laughs> um, and then I guess there's a big leap forward, you know, to me then being like a, a middle, middle of my teens and that's when punk comes along. So then I started buying tons of punk singles, you know, Sex Pistols, Clash, X-Ray Specs, mm -hmm. Susie the Banshees, blah, so... Those are my two kind of <laughs> entries into music, I guess, through <laughs> Pretty good, those you know. Doors. I still listen to, you know, David Essex. I'd still happily you know. listen to all those records. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who was the first music writer you loved? Well, I had to have a think about this because, I mean, I, you know, I remember obviously around that period reading The Enemy was the big one, Sounds. Um, my honest answer is Julie Burchill, mm. who... I absolutely adored to the extent that in my first band, I wrote a song about her yeah. called Julie. Um, you know, she was loved and hated even at that time. You know, she was controversial. I think what I liked about her was, you know, she looked brilliant. There was those great photos of her yeah. with sort of wild hair and, you know, tight skinny jeans and a leather jacket looking, you know, really gorgeous. Um, and she was sort of part of the punk writery scene. But then... She would write about disco records. Yeah. So she was quite dismissive of a lot of the punk boys and their seriousness. And, you know, again, that was really exciting being a girl. You know, she didn't buy into the notion, that, again, we're back to this thing of, you know, male rock writers could become quite mythologizing about mm. everything. And I think she was, you know, she was very good at just puncturing it all. Um, and she was funny. Yeah. Um, I mean, then I also loved, you know, the period of Paul Morley and Penman. That was when I was sort of becoming a student and that whole period of 
you know, really intellectualising yeah. Joy Division or something, you know. I was the perfect age to read all that and think, you know, this is great. It's really serious. When I interviewed you at, oh, on stage or something a few years ago, I think it was a, I think it was a periodicals publishing association event around <laughs> your book or something, and the exciting events that we, we do in our industry. Um, I remember you telling me something on stage, which has really stuck with me oh. as a journalist ever since, which is um, you saying that um, as a musician, you're you know, when you were coming up anyway, you, often, you were often quite scared of journalists. Yeah. And it's, you, we, we talked about this for a while and yeah. it's something I'd never thought about before. It seems to make so much sense now. Yes. I think it's possible because my experience of interviewing people, I don't think I'm particularly scary, but, you know, you, my, I'm going to write up what yeah. you say. That's the scary element. take the element. agency. Yeah. yeah. It, that's the scary element. You know, I think that came from experience as well that, you know, sometimes, especially when I was very young, an interview, you know, it's a, it's an informal chat, mm. essentially, but then realising that at the end of it, the, the other person goes away and writes the official version of events. Mm. And there were a couple of times when I'd read back interviews and think, oh, my God, is that how I came across? Or is that how I sounded when I said that thing? I thought I was being funny. And now in print, it looks, you know, it looks really serious, like I really meant it. And you've written about this yourself, you know, the, the editing that goes on, that kind yeah. of takes, you know, maybe the more humorous aspects of your personality out or whatever. Yes. Yeah, kind of paint you in a different way. Yeah. Um, but, you know, often in, in the, the other side of that is journalists write about how difficult artists can be. Yeah. Obviously, if you're interviewing people all the time, you know, when, when you turn up as the journalist, you have no idea what the artist's going to be like. Are they going to be open and warm and friendly or are they going to, you know, be Lou Reed? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, you read so many um, horror stories from journalists saying, well, this is what it's like when you turn up with someone who just doesn't even seem to want to talk to you. So you're thinking, well, why have they agreed to do this interview? You I know? think when you've done it for a long time, you realise that person will have been, if you're if you're a big artist or you're on the promo circuit, yeah. you're going to be, in, you you've will been have been asked those day. questions all day, all yeah. week. Yeah. Um, and the best thing that I've learnt is that, um, you know, when you write a book and people interview you, you see the other side of the process. Yeah. And it's so interesting because yeah. you can... You think, oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> everybody should have that done to them, I think. And when it's working well, you know, different journalists do ask you different things. And I sometimes find it, you know, the good side of it is it's a kind of process of discovery. You start rediscovering your own work that you've just mm. done. They, they'll bring something out of you that makes you go, oh, God, actually, I hadn't thought of it like that. Yeah. So. Oh, what was the first music book that you loved? So... I mean, there weren't that many music books around when I was younger. I do remember reading Lady Sings the Blues when oh. I was a teenager because I was mad about Billie Holiday. Um, I know in retrospect there's a lot of controversy about how much she wrote it and whether, you know, how much of it's even true. Yeah. Um, but, you know, reading it as a sort of suburban teenager, it was quite shocking, you know, mm. a story of like, you know, drugs and racism and... Um, so, I mean, that might be the first music book I read. And then I, I don't think, I don't think during the, I don't know, I'm trying to, I was trying to think of ones like from the 80s and I really couldn't think <laughs> of any. Then I remember um, the John Savage book, England's Dreaming, coming yeah. out and reading that and thinking that was incredible. So again, that must have been maybe again the beginning of a sort of reassessment of that era. I, mean, I think it came out, I wrote it down here, it came out in, I think 90s. 91, yeah, yeah, early 90s. So I wonder whether in a way it was also kind of reassessing punk, yeah. you know, from a long enough distance mm. away. But, you know, he was writing about that era precisely when I'd been a teenager, so yeah. that felt very so vivid. 
Yeah, and so your adolescence is becoming history. Yeah, and, you know, trying I know. To get... we're being taken seriously. <laughs> being presented yeah. as though it was a really important moment yeah. in time. Yeah. So that's quite cool. Cool. Um, so today's book, you've uh, referred to it already, is one you first suggested to me a long time ago. Mm. And I'm amazed we haven't done it yet, actually, on Songbook. And this is The Importance of Music to Girls by Lavinia Greenlaw. Um, it was published in 2008 by Faber and Faber. And it's a collection of 56 chapters sort of skittering through a life or rather, you know, largely the childhood and adolescence of um, Lavinia um, as a young girl for whom music is a constant in her life. Sometimes it's miraculous, sometimes it's discombobulating. It can help her get a connection with people and feelings and situations, but it can make her feel distanced as well. It's a, it's a really fascinating book and it was lovely to um, revisit this because I hadn't read this since it first came out. Um, you know, as readers, we get to really experience you know, these imaginative, adventurous, you know, excursions into language he takes us on, you know, it's brilliant. Um, um, and it's also a book that really uses music as a sort of route through which you can tell your own story. Um, uh, Lavinia Greenlaw was already an established poet and novelist by this point, for those of you who don't know. You know, it's interesting to think she'd had this, you know, long period of writing, but then she's engaging with memoir, with music as a sort of support structure mm. around this. When did you first read this? So I didn't read it when it came out. Um, I didn't know about it particularly. When I published Bedsit Disco Queen, which was in about, oh God, I've forgotten now, like 2012 20, or yeah. something. So about five years after her book came out. Um, I was interviewed by her on stage oh, uh, wow. just as one of the book events. Um, and we got on so well. Like we literally just clicked brilliantly. And I just thought, God, I love this woman. She's amazing. And she talked to me about the fact afterwards. She said, well, look, I wrote a book a few years ago. That, and I went, oh, my God, I'm going to go off and read it. And I literally went home and bought it like the next day and read it. And it was a revelation to me. I felt like how have I just written the book I've written when I hadn't read her book? Because they're like. <laughs> They're kind of sisters in some ways, yeah, you know. definitely. Similar they're, periods they're, as they're well. There's so much the same period. We had so many similar experiences. So she was born in London, but then she moved out to a little village in Essex. So she had this kind of slightly suburban outside of London upbringing like me. <laughs> she went to the village disco and she writes brilliantly about that like me. She got into punk, but was the kind of, you know, bookish, brainy girl getting into... I just thought, she is just telling <laughs> my story. She tells it really differently because her style of writing is very different. You know, it's it's very much a book written by a poet, I think, yeah. which makes it really beautiful to read. And, you know, it's not a music book in the sense of, you know, I'm a critical historian. I'm going to tell you, you know, which record came in which order and analyse their significance. It's like a really you know, sort of emotional interaction with mm. the music that formed her, you know, teenage years especially. Do you think it influenced your writing after that or influenced how you thought about writing? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it probably did. I think, I again, I found it quite eye-opening. Eye I think it made me realise, um, yeah, you can be, you know, you can be this sort of elliptical in your writing. You know, there's bits where she just, she's quite elusive about things. She doesn't pin things down, you know. Um, and as I say, she brings a lot of just poetic phrasing to things she describes. And there's um, um, just even, you know, looking through the book, you know, different chapters have different forms. Yeah. And, you know, her being a poet, it reminded me of a book that Laura Barton brought in for the last series of Songbook, which was a book called A Little Devil in America by Hanif Adarakib. I don't know if you know that book. I haven't read it. No, so I don't know that. I think you might like that. But mm, that is good. full on, um, very like stream of consciousness writing, all this kind right. of stuff. Whereas... 
this book is, um, you know, it's just some very short, yes. say, elusive and elusive chapters. Um, and then there's some lovely bits where just, you know, the there are lists of songs and sections yeah. that are structured in different ways. And it really took me into, you know, reading it now, you know, in my mid-40s, kind of made, it just reminds you of this sort of weird discombobulation you have when you're younger and exactly. you're trying to find out all this stuff through yeah. these songs you're... you're oh, look, should I read to. one little paragraph just to give a vibe of it? Yeah, definitely. So she's, it's just, the thing I like is like the precision, the way she describes it. She's talking about like being in the car with some boys and listening to music. She says, the volume turned up so high that a song would lose shape and I would feel rather than hear it. Everything shook. The car, my body and the world outside as if by sheer force of sound we could make every empty church, closed shop, locked gate and lurking police car rattle and vibrate until they came apart and the world was nothing but parts all up in the air. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juvederm.com. It's amazing. Yeah, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, that's just one paragraph, you know. I just think, you know, because she's a poet, she's very precise about her words, which means she doesn't use kind of hackneyed, cliche yes. words yes. about describing music. As we all know, you know, music journalism is a form that you're constantly trying to avoid Angular. resorting yeah. to the same <laughs> hackneyed, cliched words. Yeah. Um, and I do think that's a th- one thing that she's just so good at in here. Because yeah. she's coming at it from a different angle. Definitely. And, you know, she, you know, it's funny, I've similarly written bits down that, um, you know, she, but she uses phrases that, you know, I think should be in the best sort of music journalism. Mm. She, the way she talked about Ian Curtis, yeah. you know, is just amazing. Yeah. You know, she saw them in the electric ballroom and she talks about that being a Masonic Lodge and kind of like yeah. goes into these little details that she's pulling in. And then she goes, Ian Curtis spoke to me feeling beyond what a single person could bear. And it's just really mm. simple. Yes. And that's not particularly, you know, um, flowery or flamboyant no. in any, any way, but it's just lovely and captures it. And... There's a bit she wrote about singing, which um, I do think actually, so it's just one sentence. She said, 
We reveal something of our nature when we sing, something that can be disguised in our speaking voice. Yeah. And I I do think that found its way into the book I then wrote about singing because right. I read that and thought, oh, that's so true. Right. Um, and, you know, it, that was a sort of starting point for um, some of the things I wrote about in, in the next book. Do you feel that as a singer, that you're becoming I do think it's true. I, I just think there's... There is something that you can't hide. Um, I remember when I started singing and people always used to say, you know, the first things people ever said was, oh, your voice is very moving and very sad. Um, and I used to bridle a bit at that going, wait, what? That, that <laughs> makes me sound like all my songs are sad. Um, but now when I listen back, I know precisely what they mean. And I can also sort of identify why that's the case. You wow. know, that for me, I do think music was there in order to express things that I wasn't good at expressing in my actual sort of daily life. Yeah. You know, I, I grew up in a family that wasn't very good at expressing <laughs> difficult feelings and where things were often kept quite, you know, the lid on everything. Yeah. Um, it's interesting, you just make me think of people I've interviewed in the past who've said similar things and mm. I'm thinking of Romy from the XX who I know you love yeah. and she's talked about yeah. that kind of when she was first recording, like doing it very quietly. Yes, narrative. but it's not about trying to sound a certain way. I no. think it's just that thing of what leeches out when, yeah. and I suppose that point Lavinia is making is in, in your singing voice, it's, it's really hard to disguise those bits of your personality. And Lavinia Greenall as well talks about how music can really affect you physically as well as emotionally. Yeah. As you say, there's a lot of brilliant stuff about dance um, and, you know, and discos. Um, but also this sense of young people, you know, rummaging around music as a way of finding their identity. You know, she talked about folk dancing when she was a kid, which I yeah. loved that bit. Um, how Top of the Pops was her map, like a child filling a stamp album or collecting eggs. <laughs> I just loved that. But also she talks about how contrived that process can be as well, which is something you've sort of written about in your writing. She talks about... Um, I stopped listening to music on the radio when I'd acquired enough of my own to contrive listening to it as an, an adventure. Um, you know, th th there's a kind of pick and mix thing about music that you're trying to create something that isn't necessarily, yeah. you know, you don't necessarily just fall in love with music and it becomes part of who you are. Sometimes you're, you're trying to mould yourself using things. Yeah. And there's an honesty to that, that. And you take bits that are useful to you. Yes. I mean, again, we're back to the thing we were talking about earlier about, you know, the fact that she calls her book The Importance of Music to Girls. Yes. It's very much the story of a girl in that moment in time. Um, I mean, and she talks about how much she used, you know, punk as a kind of, you know, gender mm. range description. She talks about the fashion of it and says, I was reversing out of being a girl, yeah. perhaps in the hope of regaining the freedom of my tomboy childhood. I stole my father's coats and suits, a school blazer from my younger brother and my ex-boyfriend's leather jacket. Mm. Um, now, that's not about the music particularly, but punk, you know, a lot of it was the style as well. And I think, you know, a lot of it was quite useful to girls who were battling with you know, just how conventional yeah. gender expectations were. Because even though those time. are punk times, this is still this little very fixed expectations. Yeah. Obviously, you have, you know, women outside that how tiny little... How you supposed to look? And yeah. punk women were properly radical. Yeah. You know, the look was... Um, well, certainly my parents found it absolutely appalling and <laughs> horrifying. <laughs> There's an honesty in this book as well about when she's missed things you know kind of um you know yeah there's a bit about um when punk came to town it didn't take any notice of me and i failed to go out and meet it <laughs> and she talks about her diaries obviously yes. your diaries you quote from your diaries brilliantly and hilariously in another planet um you know the, the kind of 
and how talk about how dishonest you were being with yourself at the yeah. time. I love that she goes to see an opera and she says she really wants to feel something. She doesn't feel anything. No. <laughs> but um, I, I think it's really lovely to talk about that stuff. And I know I'm saying this as somebody who has written a book about how music moves you. But, you know, mm. I remember I went to an opera when I was 12. I couldn't, my mum couldn't go because my mum was pregnant with my little brother. And I went with a friend or something in the Swansea Grand Theatre. Very, <laughs> very fancy. And I... I, I've never really been able to go to an opera since because I had such a, a similar it. experience. It killed opera for you. It killed opera, all opera. No, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I've, I've had long conversations with people about this. I need to kind of broach these things. I've, I've managed ballet now, but um, opera, yeah, La Boheme and Swansea Grand killed it for me. But I love that sometimes, you know, you will go, when I went to my first RM gig, my favourite band, I felt strangely not as moved as I wanted to yeah. be. And I love that about her writing as yes. well. She's honest about how sometimes music can't give you the things. No, that you it's want not to. everything. You know, you sometimes when you're young, you want to make it be everything. Um, but you know, it's it's not, and it's not controllable. You know, it's also its own thing, separate from you. And as I say, you're trying to take from it what you need. I, yeah, I just, as I say, I was so struck when I read it by the sort of similarities between our books. I mean, I think I got in touch with her after just going, I can't, I just literally can't believe I hadn't read your book. Anyone who read my book and had read yours before might have gone, oh, well, she's borrowed a lot of this from Lavinia Greenlaw. Um, so it's really, I mean, it's just really fascinating, I think, seeing, well, just recognising yourself in someone else's writing. You know, it's a really lovely feeling, Absolutely, I think. Feeling, yeah. Feeling seen. I wanted to ask you about, there's a bit in the book where she talks about how she started to listen differently to music after reading in the music press and listening to her favourite DJs, like someone who's grasped prosody, reading a poem differently. And, you know, did you feel like that when you were, you know, maybe reading the music press or listening to your favourite DJs, that you were sort of getting a vocabulary that was changing the way you listened to music? Well, yeah, I mean, there's certainly that period when you're young, especially that I think I did have a sense that, you know, these these people I was reading knew better than me, you know, knew more than me. So if they'd made something single of the week, you know, there must be a very good reason. <laughs> Whereas maybe as you get a bit older, you become a bit more defiant about, you know, your own taste and would perhaps give it a listen, but then go, well, no, that's uh, either that's rubbish or, well, that's not for me. Yeah. But there was definitely a period when... Um, I think I was, you know, quite slavishly following what the people I respected, you know, were recommending, just yeah. thinking, well, they, they know what I'm supposed to like. And obviously um, those are the days where you can't just go and listen to anything you want to make your own decision. I mean, we didn't have that many <laughs> records anyway, you know, there was much narrower focus. Um, so as I say, you know, whatever was made single of the week that week or whatever John Peel was playing that was new that week. Mm. It's not like there were hundreds of new tracks every week. Yeah, um, yeah. I think sometimes it's 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 easy to forget how much smaller the whole scene was. You know how you could kind of you could become an expert by owning about ten albums, really, <laughs> couldn't you? I mean, music journalism is much easier in those days, for sure. Um, are there any other favourite bits of yours that you wanted to talk about? There's a bit that struck me about she's talking about Nashville skyline. I know you're you're a fan of Bob Dylan, but um, Johnny Cash and Bob Dylan singing together is so beautiful. She writes expressed. about watching the last waltz, doesn't yeah, she? Yeah, oh, that and was she, great. And not madly getting into it. And bizarrely, I only watched the last waltz for the first time about a month ago in the wake of the death of Robbie Robertson. Um, and I'd actually forgot. I, I looked at the book, this book again recently, and when I got to that bit, I was like, "Oh my god, I'd forgotten." Yeah, that you wrote about the last walls. I was really struck by the last walls when I watched it. In the in the sense of realizing that 
at the time when it came out, it wouldn't have meant anything to me at all. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't into that scene. I don't think I probably even knew it was out. <laughs> when we watched it on the telly, me and Ben, and he said he remembered going to see it. You know, in the way, again, there was that slight separation, I think, between what boys mm. just kind of absorbed as being serious music. Look, this is a Scorsese film about the band. Of course I'm going to go and see it. You know, that's like serious music. I don't think I even knew it existed. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that, that was another point that I read and just thought, oh, okay, there's another link. <laughs> There's, um, I love the epigraph in it as well. You know, this is a work of memory. Facts have been altered. <laughs> yes. I love that. There's just, throughout, there's a sense that she's trying to grasp at, you know, um, those memories, those experiences. Um, you know, there are boyfriends and their relationships. I love the ending. She's just had, a, had her child. And yeah. So you've got this almost reflection. Well, it's not even a reflection in the past. It's just her and um, Daniel, who's an important person yeah. in the book talking about these records that he's lost yeah. and how, you know, these connections are still made to these things. Yeah. I mean, I, I do think it's a book about music being a, a sort of, you know, an engine of liberation, especially for a young girl. Um, I mean, she writes really, you were saying she writes really well about dancing. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. I, there's another little bit here that I really love, which is the um, the village disco. So again, I guess it's like the mid 70s, which was very much the period I was going to discos. And she says, safely in place in our circles and lines, under cover of maximum volume, within the bounds of our pencil skirts, we could be fierce. Yeah. You know, this idea that the girls are all dancing. She says, we're dancing in four-inch wedge heels, stomping in time to wars, me and baby brother. <laughs> but the idea that it, could, it allowed you to be fierce. Yeah. Um, you know, again, I think that's a really good word. Mm. Um, you know, in an, in an age when women were still expected to be you know, sort of polite and decorous, yeah. um, you know, not overly loud, not taking up too much space. Yeah. The idea that, you know, whether it's dancing at a village hall disco or then going to a punk gig, these were all sort of outlets which enabled, you know, a young girl to make a bit more noise, yeah. you know, to take up a bit more space, to be a bit more fierce. Yeah, she talks about that making noise and what, yeah. turning her own noise down as one yes. point. Yes, I mean, the, yes, I think that, that tension between quietness and volume is mm. is very important, perhaps especially for women. We were talking about Romy talking about, you know, with the XX, you know, them, you know, always making their music quietly in the bedroom, not wanting to be overheard. I had that same yeah. vibe. And I think, you know, it does go quite deep that, sort of social expectation yeah. on you. And I think women can very easily be made to feel that they're talking too much or too, talking too loud, you know, taking up too much of the conversation. Yeah. Um, and even in music, I, I think that, that can be the case. Yeah, are we still, you know, li you know even though, as you, we were saying earlier, that lots of things have changed, you know, we still live in a world where, you know, um, although they don't sell as many copies as they used to, you know, the mainstream music magazines you know, will be 95% male on the cover, 95% yeah, male writers. Yes. Not 95% male writers. There are some great female writers yeah. who write for them, but, you know, it's still largely men. It's, <laughs> I know it still takes a lot, I think, to, you know, and when people are asked, you know, favourite albums, favourite guitar players, favorite, I look at lists still and think, wow. I mean, I understand that there's an imbalance because historically more men have made records, but 
I still look at lists and think, wow, when you made that list, did you not just then pause and think, wait, hang on, (laughs) (laughs) you know, am I leaving anything out here? Maybe I am. Maybe I could just rethink it before I actually hit send. I think that at least three times a day. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I just, I still find that really shocking how sort of apparently, you know, blind to the, the issue people can still be. Yeah. Um, I'm not saying every list needs to be, you know, entirely perfectly balanced. I understand that, you yeah. know, there's a wealth of music out there and you want to reflect what you truly love. But yeah. I still think there's a, there's a knee-jerk thing of people just overlooking yeah. stuff that yeah, when you yeah. point it out to them, they'll go, oh, yeah, yeah, no, I suppose you're right. You know, yeah, yeah I suppose Joni Mitchell is as good as... <laughs> you like, right. I think she is, isn't she? <laughs> she probably ought to be on every list, oughtn't she? <laughs> So, yeah. Yeah. It's great to have a book like Lavinia Greenlaw's on Songbook. And, you know, it's been great to get lots of other books about women mentioned as well by people yeah. bringing them in. I think people are getting more conscious about that stuff now, yeah. which is great. Definitely. Hopefully so. Um, thank you so much, Tracy, for bringing The Importance of Music Girls by Lavinia Greenlaw into Songbook. It is published by Faber and Faber at nine ninety nine in paperback. You've got a lovely American I've got a lovely there. American one, which has got a really great sort of drawing on the front of this punky looking girl in a little tartan skirt who's shaved the back of her hair. She's sitting, is she sitting on a record did. as well, I think. Yeah, she is. She's sitting, sitting on, on the edge of a, a big vinyl <laughs> disc. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's lovely. Right. And now, Tracy, I know you've, because you're wonderful, you always prepare for these things. And <laughs> I, I mentioned our book song playlist. Oh, yes. Um, which is full of songs inspired by. by works of literature in some way. What have you chosen? I've chosen Keats' song by Pete Shelley. Oh, cool. Um, from Homo Sapien. Amazing. Came out in 1981. Um, and it's, I think it counts because it ends with the words, um, oh, Keats was so clever, a thing of beauty is a joy forever. Of course that counts. <laughs> yes. Was that a big record from that I period? Mean, I absolutely adored that song to the point where I did a little cover of it in my bedroom once, which I have on an old cassette. <laughs> <laughs> somewhere, me with my acoustic guitar singing. It's kind of electronic song yeah, when yeah. he was doing that. Um, but it's the most brilliant song. Fantastic, yeah. fantastic. Thank so. you very much. Brilliant. <laughs> I love the fact this playlist is completely insane. <laughs> it goes everywhere. Um, thank you so much, Tracy, for coming in today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, I should tell to the listeners that, obviously, Tracy's books. Tracy didn't tell me to say this. I am telling you, so listen to me. Tracy's books are available for Christmas presents. Bed's Disco Queen and Naked to the Alba Hall are published by Mirago and Another Planet and My Rock and Roll Friend are published by Canongate. We didn't even talk about My Rock and Roll Friend. And it's I'm amazing to read a book about a friendship that has been sustained through many years um, and just look at how women were treated in the music industry, mm. but also how just women were and were allowed to be and allowed themselves to be within the music industry over years. Yeah. So it's a, it's a fantastic, fantastic book. Lindy's a great example of someone who never abided by the rules of, <laughs> of being yeah. quiet and not taking up enough space. So actually it was really good to write a book about someone who just broke all those rules. Yeah. So instead of complaining about, you know, how the rules hem everyone in, it was actually, I found it really exciting just to write about someone who just... yeah. Don't give a shit about any of that. Yeah, no, it's it's fantastic. Yeah. You know, a book about a book by a woman about two women's friendship. You know, you, you very rarely do you get that kind of level of yeah. depth about a friendship. Um, in looking at the music world, and I absolutely loved it. Oh, and also there are you, you can always buy a CD or vinyl of um, Fuse on Buzzing Flight. It's a gorgeous <laughs> record. I love the fact that it just feels very of the moment, but I can hear. 
it feels very grown up. You know, it sounds like it sounds like somebody. T- it sounds like club music, but made by people who absolutely love club music. But also, there's this. The piano tracks are stunning as well. Yeah, just kind of well, made me think of Sandy Denny, some of them. Just oh, that kind great. of level oh, of God, beauty. That's a great compliment. Yeah. Sandy Denny at the disco. No. <laughs> not, not quite. No, not that's gonna... a good blend. I like it. I like it. Um, but yeah, so um, Philly Boots, Tracy stuff is essentially what I'm saying. Um, thank you for coming here. And um, there are two other series of Songbook um, available to all your listeners to listen to on your preferred podcast provider with lots of other fantastic recommendations for Christmas. Just type Songbook White Rabbit into the search engine and you'll find us there along with our book song playlist. Thank you so much for listening. And we'll see you um, next week for our final Christmas special. This has been a White Rabbit and Carmelite Studios production, presented and written by Jude Rogers. Music by David Holmes. Episode producer Jake Alderson. Editor Dan Jones. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.